This week on One Body Stewarding God's Creation, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers talks about Genesis, Naked Without Shame. This talk is being used with permission. So now, here's Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. The Catholic man is an endangered species. Now, unlike other species that can trace the past to their extinction through overfishing, pollution, or whatever, we men are causing our own destruction. We choose pornography and masturbation over the one flesh union of the conjugal act in marriage or the intimacy of the celibate life. We choose abortion and contraception over serving, protecting, and defending a woman's dignity and a culture of life. We choose spiritual sloth and laziness over witnessing to the truth of our faith with passion and conviction. We've become timid. We've stopped leading. We no longer desire holiness. We've compromised our values and abdicated our responsibilities. Catholic men were created for greatness, but instead we choose to be purveyors of immorality and mediocrity. Well, I'll tell you something, man. I think we're better than that. Sometimes when we're going through the road of life, sometimes we get detoured. Sometimes we get sidetracked. Sometimes we get deterred. So what we want to do this morning is get ourselves back on track to understand what God's plan is for how we are to view women in our culture and society. And I want to start by seeing what God's plan was from the beginning, how Satan came and screwed it up, some of the challenges we have today, and how we can fix it. So open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Now you notice in Genesis chapter 2, and starting at verse 7, it said, the Lord God formed man of dust of the ground. Now, the word man there is Adam in Hebrew. Adam means the fullness of humanity. That's where we get the name Adam, right, from Adam and Eve. But Adam, the word itself, means the fullness of humanity. And it says there that God formed man of dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is beautiful. Where do we see this in a very hands-on way? Ash Wednesday. We're reminded of this reality every Ash Wednesday. Because when you get the ashes put on your head, what does what the priest say? Or the deacon, ashes to ashes, dust to you. Remember, oh man, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But the beautiful part says that God, the Holy Spirit, breathed into us the breath of life. Now, the only one that creates in the entire Bible is God. The Hebrew word is bara in Hebrew. That means to create. The only subject of that verb, the only person that creates in the entire scriptures is God. We don't create anything. We co-create with God. There's only twice in the Bible that God creates by breathing. This is the first place. Anybody know where the second one is? John chapter 20, on the day of the resurrection, they're in the upper room. The 10 apostles are there. Why 10? Judas hung himself, and we know Thomas wasn't there the first time the Lord appeared. And he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The word is ruah in Hebrew, means the, the breathe life, the breath of God's Holy Spirit is in us right now. Do we live our lives as men as if that even matters? Do we even care that we 
have God's life within us. Say, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Did you not know that you are temples of the Holy Spirit that you have in you from God? It's reminding us. He was living the culture back then, and we are most certainly living in a culture right now that has forgotten that reality. Then it says, the Lord, verse 15, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till and to keep it. Well, is it that swell? He makes him the gardener. <laughs> I don't think so. First of all, by putting me in the garden, the Lord is entrusting his creation to man. Okay? So he's the steward over God's creation. But the key, it says that he, he put him in the garden to till and to keep it. The word for till is abad in Hebrew. That means a work that's in the form of a service. And to keep is shamar in Hebrew, which means to protect and defend. So what the Lord is doing, he's giving man his mission. He's giving man his clarion call. He's letting man know the purpose for his creation. You are to serve, protect, and defend everything I am entrusting to you. That's our mission, men of God. Page two of the Bible, to serve, protect, and defend everything that God has entrusted to us. God makes it real easy in the beginning. Not no 10 commandments, only one. You may eat freely of every tree in the garden. Why freely? Because when you enter into covenant relationship, the, the, the tenets of covenant relationship says the relationship has to be free, faithful, total, and fruitful. So it has to be free. Look, this is my first time here. If I walked up on the street out here and went up to some woman and said, I'm going to marry you. There's nothing you can do about it. What's she going to do? What's she going to do? She's going to scream. She's going to run. She's going to tag her cell phone and call the police, 911. Hey, this is big black dude talking about he's going to marry me. Get here quick. And because I don't see many brothers here, the cops are going to get here real fast. This is going to be, get on the ground, get on the ground, get on the ground. Come on now. Is that love? No, because it's not free. Love that's freely given has to be freely reciprocated. So what the Lord is talking about here is you have free will. You can choose to be in that relationship of intimate personal, loving, and life-giving communion that God has called each of us to. He's inviting us to share his life. And we're free, which means what? We're free to say yes to that invitation, or we're free to say no. So the Lord says, you may eat freely of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day if you eat of it, you shall die. Now the Lord is saying, okay, you have your run of everything here except that tree right there. Why is the tree there in the, what's the purpose? Why is it there in the first place? Two reasons. One, the tree represents God's authority. Because remember, he's making him the steward over all his creation. But sometimes we get put in charge of stuff. Sometimes we can forget who's really in charge. We think we can control everything. And we don't put our trust in God. That tree is a reminder, uh, excuse me, I'm God and you're not. The second reason, now, now look at the tree. It's not just any tree, right? It's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, there's two words in Hebrew for knowledge. One is da'ath. And da'ath is factual knowledge. Two plus two is four. The earth goes around the sun. That's not the word that they used here. They used the word yauda. And yauda means knowledge that is gained by experience. You have to experience something in order to know it. So, for example, I have four beautiful children. 
including a set of twins who are, actually they just turned 12 years old last week. When they were about four years old, they wanted to help daddy cook dinner one night. And so they pushed their stools up. They had these little stools. They pushed them up on either side of me. And my daughter, Sophia, was up here at the prep table. And my son, Benjamin, wanted to be near the heat, near the stove, near the fire. So he climbs up. I said, okay, Benjamin, the stove is hot, son. Watch daddy. Ooh, woo, 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 ouch, ooh, don't touch that. That's hot, okay? Ooh, ouchies. Don't touch that, okay? All right, buddy. Turn around. Go help my daughter. And I turn, look back. What's Benjamin doing? His hand's going toward the stove. And I whipped around. I grabbed his hand and pulled it back. Now, he didn't touch the actual fire, but he got close enough where he felt the heat. Ow! See, man, I tried to tell you, man, don't touch it because it's hot. Because sometimes as men, we have to experience something before we can know it. And that's the sense here. Because think about it. Is the tree itself evil? No. Because everything that God creates is good. So God did not want man to know evil. Where did the evil come from? When man uses his free will to say no to God's invitation. And God did not want man to experience that. So he says, if you make the choice, if you use your free will to say no to my invitation, you will die. And how, first of all, the act of that defiance is taking the fruit from the tree and eating it. If you do that, you will die. And the word is mavet, which means to cut yourself off from the life of God. To cut yourself off from God's life. So he says, all right, no problem. He's silent. But see, the Lord is very intelligent. <laughs> the Lord says, okay, you're probably going to need a little help. But why? Think about it. He's got a pretty good situation. He's got his Garden of Eden man cave. You know, he's got everything to himself. He's living large. And why does the Lord then say in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Why not? Because remember, God exists as a family, as a communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So by himself, man makes no sense. Why? Because the family on earth has to be the image of the family in heaven, right? So the fact that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the two, the Father and Son that generates the love, the love between them is so powerful, it generates another person, the Holy Spirit. So that in the family, you know, you have your father, your mother, and then the love between them is so powerful, it generates a third, which are children. Or for our priests, right, and my seniors that are here, no, none of this is any different for them. Same thing applies, except their bride is who? The church, because they stand in persona Christi, in the person of Christ the priest. Revelation 19, verse 9, blessed are those who are called to the wedding feast of the Lamb, where Christ, the eternal bridegroom, is continually giving life to his bride, the church. How does a priest do that for us? If we're the bridegroom, we're the church, and the priest is the bride, how does he give us life? The Eucharist. Because Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. You're dead. And where else does he give us life? Sacrament of reconciliation. Because when you are a mortal sin away from God, you're dead. Reconciliation is a sacrament for the dead. The Eucharist is a sacrament for the living. So he says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. <laughs> the word helper here doesn't mean maid. <laughs> doesn't mean assistant. Doesn't mean someone who picks up my 
dirty clothes and does my laundry and makes my meals. Nothing like the, the word actually is azadar konegdo. It's a compound word in Hebrew. Help mate, azadar konegdo, which means someone who stands opposite or parallel to you, who helps, assists, surrounds, and protects in battle. So God, from the beginning, wants to create a battle partner for him. And is that a connecto, battle partner? So how does God go about finding a battle partner for him? And what is a battle going to be against, by the way? Sin and death, evil, Satan. That's right, sin and death. So the Lord says, so out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field, bird of the air, and brought them to the man to see what the man will call. says, okay, you need a, is there you need a battle partner? What about the zebra? Ah, uh, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not feeling that, Lord. I, okay, what about ostrich? Mm, no, no, no. Okay, what about musk ox? No. You see, what's happening here? God presents them with all these, and they're not compatible with him. We're doing the same thing today in our culture. Men are trying to marry men. Women try to marry women. People are trying to marry objects. Just north of me in Seattle, a woman tried to marry her apartment building. You can Google, don't believe, Google it yourself. In France, a woman married a bridge. And the mayor of the town presided at the ceremony. Another woman married her dead fiance. A woman in this state married herself. You remember that? You look, yeah, okay, she married herself. A guy in California married a cat. I mean, it's getting ridiculous because this culture is so turned in on itself. It's all about me, all about what I want. Instead of covenant relationship that God desires for us, which always seeks what's best for the other. Self-giving, self-sacrificing love. God continually pouring out his love and life into us. That's what he did on the cross. He gave everything. And he asked us to do the same. He invites us to do the same in a relationship of covenant intimacy with him. But it says, but there was, but for the man there was not found a helper fit for him. So God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put you to sleep. I'm going to take a rib and build up a woman. Notice he doesn't start over again with another lump of clay. He takes the rib from the side, builds up a woman, the goose goes to sleep, he wakes up. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Woo! Huh? And he sees her. Now, look what he says. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. How come he doesn't look at her and says, wow, she's hot? What's going on here? First of all, why does he use a rib? Think about God could have used any bone from the body that he wanted, something maybe from the lower part of the body, tibia, fibula, femur, patella, something like that. Or maybe something for the upper part of the body. Parietal, temporal, clavicle, occipital. So, wh- why a rib? Anybody know? Near the heart. You know, everybody says that. But here's the thing. I-, I study theology. I don't really study medicine that much. What side of the body is the heart mostly on? The left side. The word of God doesn't say what side he took the rib from. Could have been either side. So why a rib? An extra, oh Lord have mercy. An extra one. God, oh, you just got to exercise. So you're basically calling your wife a spare rib? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I'm just messing with you, man. No, no, here's the thing. Here's the thing. If the Lord took a bone from the lower part of the body, she'd be less than him. If he took a bone from the upper part of the body, she'd be greater than him. She took a, he took a rib from the side to show that she's equal to him. Equal right from the beginning. Equal, but not the same. See, we live in a culture that looks you in the face and lies to you every day, that tells you in order to be equal, you have to be the same. 
So unless women are doing what men do, and men do what women do, and everybody, then nobody's equal. Wrong answer. Because there's a fundamental and intrinsic unity within the complementarity of our being. In other words, what makes me a man and what makes a woman a woman, those gifts perfect and complement each other. And it's when those gifts come together that tells us what it means to be made in God's image and likeness. It's precisely because of our differences that allows us to have unity. It's precisely because of our differences that allows us to have unity. Beautiful. That's God's plan. So when he sees her, he looks upon someone that perfects him, that complements him, that completes him. And he looks upon her and he says, this at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Why does he say it that way? Simply this. In Semitic languages like Hebrew and Aramaic, there are no superlatives. So in other words, in English, if, we're, if we want to say something that's to the highest degree, we say like the greatest, the best, the most, right? But in these languages, they didn't have words like that. So in order to get that sense of cross, they did two things. They said something three times. So for example, at Mass, the Sanctus, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Why? Because the Lord gets the highest degree of holiness. Or they used a prepositional phrase. So for example, St. Paul says Jesus Christ is king of kings and Lord. Elizabeth says to the Blessed Mother, blessed are you among women. That means you are the most blessed of all women. So in this case, the man looks upon his wife. He looks upon this person that's also created in God's image and likeness. And he sees someone that perfects and completes him. And he says, you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You are the greatest of my bone. You are the greatest of my flesh. You are the greatest part of who I am. You are my equal. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. It's almost as if they look at each other. And she says to him, myself, my source. And he looks back at her, realizing that she came from his side, myself. That's covenant relationship. So then it says, therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Not one person. I used to work in campus law enforcement. I left my job two years ago to speak and to do this full time. But when I was on campus, he said, a lot of these couples walking around, Oh, I'm so in love. Oh, I'm so in love. I lost myself in him. <laughs> I lost myself in her. And I'd say to these couples, you better find yourself. When you are in a relationship of covenant love and intimacy, you don't lose anything of the person that God created you to be. You don't lose yourself. You find yourself. Because it is precisely in that relationship that other person helps you to become more of the person who God created you to be. That, whether it's the priest and it's the church, or whether those of us who are married, or if you're single, the culture, helps us to become more of the person who God created us to be. And how is this relationship symbolized in a one flesh union? What's the deepest form of intimacy we can have with God on this earth? Communion, the Eucharist. The only time you'll ever be that close to God again is when you're dead and you're standing before him to be judged. The deepest form of intimacy is the one flesh union when God unites his body and blood, soul, and divinity with our bodies and souls. You don't get more personal than that. 
in that beautiful conjugal act of love and intimacy. Sex is a gift from God. It is sacred and it is holy because it is our participation in God's life-giving power. Remember, we co-create with God. And he's given us the ability to do exactly that. And because he, it's given to us by God, that means it is sacred and that means it is holy. But we have twisted it and perverted it and distorted it and changed it into a consumer product. We spend $3,000 a second on porn, turning women into whores for our pleasure and gratification. And we call ourselves men? Contraception, abortion, or you get yourself sterilized like a damn dog. And we wonder why we're in the mess we're in in our culture today. Look in the mirror. It's our fault. This is what we're going through right now. This is who God created us to be as men. And we have forgotten, which is exactly why I'm starting here. Because sometimes you got to move back before you can move forward. We have to understand who God created us to be and not be afraid to live this reality every day of our lives. And the man and his wife, the last line of Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Why? Because they're seeing each other through God's eyes. What they see is what God sees. That's God's plan. One page of the Bible. The Bible could have been the shortest book in the history of the world. <laughs> Instead, we got all the rest of this, which is what? How we screwed it up and how Jesus had to come save us. That's all the rest of the Bible is. So what happened? Everything's going along well. And then in Genesis chapter 3, who shows up? Satan, the snake. Now notice out of all the things that the devil could have gone after, what does he go after first? The family. Not the sun or the moon or the stars or any of the animals or anything. The first thing he goes after is the family. That was his number one target then, and that is his number one target now. You your wife, your children, your family. Let's get something straight. Satan is trying to kill you. He's trying to destroy you. He's trying to take God's life out of you. And he is a liar. He will say whatever he's got to say and do whatever he's got to do to convince you to choose yourself over God. And I'm going to show you exactly how he does it so you won't have an excuse. Because he hasn't changed anything. What he did back then, he's still doing it now. But notice, when he goes after the family, who in the family does he go after first? The woman. Why her? You ever wonder, why, why her? Because remember, they're equal right from the beginning. Equal but not the same. So why does God go after her first? See, simply this. St. John Paul II wrote a beautiful document called Mulieris Dignitatem on the dignity and vocation of women. And in that document, he says, in God's eternal plan, it is woman in whom the order of love in the created world of persons first takes root. What does that mean? In God's mind from all eternity, when he planned to take love, which is his very essence, his very nature, his very being, in Greek, his usia, his stuff itself is love. We know that's true. 1 John 4, 16 says what? God is love. He takes that love and he plants that into man, male and female. He created them, Ish and Isha. So out of the Adam, the fullness of humanity, comes Ish and Isha, male and female. He created them. The Holy Father is saying that that love first took root, first established a home, first formed a foundation within the heart of the woman first. 
a woman is the very heart of God's love. Don't we even say things that the woman is the heart of the home? She's the heart of the family. Think about it. Those of you who have kids. Remember when the kids were small and maybe they run around and one of them would fall down on the ground? And you'd be there, don't worry, daddy's here. And you walk over to your child to go pick them up there. <laughs> and they look up at you. Who they calling for? Mommy. You standing right there and they calling for mommy. Why? Because they don't love you? No. Because when you live in somebody for nine months, that is an experience of intimacy that we men will never fully understand or appreciate ever. Because by the very nature of how God created a woman, whether she's eight or 80, whether she has a child or not, by the very nature of how God created a woman, and because she cooperates with the intimacy of the Holy Spirit, who is, and we say at Mass every, in the creed, dominum et vivificantem, the Lord and giver of life. And a woman participates in the intimacy with the Holy Spirit as a life giver and a life bearer. Even if she doesn't have a child, she becomes a nun. She is a life giver and a life bearer. And Satan knew that. So Satan says to himself, if I can destroy that, everything else will fall. And guess what? He was right. The interesting thing to me is how he does it. Now, I'm going to show you right now. Satan only has one play in his playbook. Only one. Now, I'm going to assume you guys are Cardinals fans, right? So let's say the Cardinals get to training camp, football, right? They get to training camp, and the coach hands the playbook, and they open up all these pages, and they, all of them are blank except for one page. It only has one play. How many games would they win? None. Why? Because every time they touch the ball, the other team knows what they're going to do every time because they only have one play. There's no way they can win. My brothers in Christ, Satan only has one play in his playbook, and we keep losing. Century after century, millennium after millennium, we keep getting our butts kicked with one play, which I'm going to show you right now. We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. We'll be right back with more from Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. We're back on One Body Stewarding God's Creation, Naked Without Shame, with Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Deacon Harold begins by talking about the plays the devil uses on us. One play, two parts. First part. Notice his first words to her in Genesis 3.1 is a question. Did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Girl, is that what he said to you? Or if you have a, anybody have a New American Bible, it says, did God really say? What is his point in asking her that question? To plant the seeds of confusion and doubt in her mind, not only about what God said, but who God is in her life. Not only confusion, not only about what God said, but who God is in your life. So he asked a question. You know what that question sounds like now? <laughs> who, who says some white guy from Argentina with a beanie on his head has to tell me what to do with my body? I don't need a church to tell me what to do. Who says I go to church every Sunday? I can worship God any way that I want. That's what that sounds like today. And what's the purpose of that question? Simply this. Up at this point, our conscience and what is the conscience? It's the practical application of the fundamental principle of the natural law. Natural law, it says, do good and avoid evil. 
The conscious is the practical application of the natural law. So our conscious always wants to point north toward God, toward the beatific vision, toward life with God forever in heaven. But by asking that question and planting the seeds of confusion and doubt, that compass now starts to swing away from north, starts swinging away from God as the center of our being in existence, and starts swinging away and eventually starts pointing toward who? Yourself. Now, how do we know that, the, that she was confused? Look at her answer. Verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, how is her answer different from what God actually said when we looked at back, that back in Genesis chapter 2? Did God say anything about touching the tree? Nope. He said, don't eat the fruit of the tree. She adds this touching business, which God didn't say. So she adds something that God didn't say. She's already confused. But she got the last part right. Lest you die. Oh, ho, oh, oh. ho. Remember, Satan is the author and the king of death. He knows death really well. And he's a liar. So he says to her, you will not die. Is that what he told you? He doesn't want you to be like him. Verse 5, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. In other words, you don't need God because you're your own God. Needle is now pointing toward I decide what it means to be Catholic. I don't need commandments or catechisms or moral codes to tell me, I'm a good person. I didn't kill any, so I don't go to church every Sunday. I'm, I'm spiritual. I didn't kill anybody, forgetting that there's nine more commandments. A few weeks ago, I was greeting people after Mass, and a guy and a woman, I saw, I saw a, a woman and her, her kids came up to me, and I said, hey, kiddos, hey. Look, I said, hey, where's Dad? Thinking he was in the bathroom, he's pulling the car around. She said, well, Deacon, he's not here. Thinking, maybe he's a physician. He's on rounds at the hospital, or maybe he's a fireman. He's on days on at the station. But she said, well, Deacon, um, my husband, he's a, he's a good man. And if you met him, oh, Deacon, you really like him. I mean, he's kind, and he's generous, and he's a good provider. He gives you the shirt off his back. He really is a good person but he just doesn't see the point in coming to Mass every Sunday because he could worship God any way that he wants. Oh, I see. Well, could you tell your husband something from Deacon Harold when you get home? <laughs> tell him that I said there are no good people in heaven. Not one good person in heaven. The only people in heaven are who are what? Are who? Saints. And we are all called to be saints. As Jesus says, to be perfect as the heavenly Father is perfect. The word is teleos in Greek, or tamim in Hebrew, which means whole and complete. Whole and complete. That's who God calls us to be. But Satan is a liar. So now look at her now. Verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, mm, sin is going to taste good. And she saw it was a light to the eye, sin looks good. And she saw it was desired to make one wise, I'm going to be like God. She, all the same verse now. She took of his fruit and ate and gave some to her husband, and he ate, period. All one verse. Did you catch that? Where was her husband while all this was going on? See? Now, in, in the New American Bible translation, it says, she gave some to her husband who was with her. Now, wait a minute. 
I thought his job was to serve, protect, and defend everything that was entrusted to him, including the woman that came from his side. But when it came time to do exactly that, he stood by and did nothing while Satan destroyed his wife and his family. And we got too many men who are today doing nothing while Satan destroys the family, the church, and this culture. HHS mandate, redefinition of marriage, that's on us because we stand by and do nothing. And when you stand by and do nothing, you are a slave. You're not free. Looking at pornography, you're a whore of Satan. It's exactly what you are because you don't fight. We don't, do, we don't serve, protect, defend. We, we've lost that now. Well, the women in the family, they're the spiritual ones. They'll teach the kids their prayers. We are the priests in our homes, the priests of the domestic church. And we have to remember who we are if we ever want to have any chance of taking this culture back. Nothing is impossible with God. We just have to remember who we are. And look, look what happens now. So notice it, was, it says, then the, in verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened. So notice it wasn't until they both ate that they both fell. It wasn't like she ate, oh, now I'm going to use my feminine wiles to seduce that man to eat this fruit. So that's not what the word of God says. It wasn't until they both ate that they both fell. Why? They were one flesh. And isn't it interesting the first thing that they notice after they fall into sin? Then the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked. They no longer see each other the way God sees them. They now look on each other as objects for pleasure and gratification. So when God comes to the man and says, hey, I'm looking for you. Where? Because it says, uh, a beautiful anthropomorphic image of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This beautiful, and he's looking. He's looking. He's like, and what does God ask here? Where are you? Verse 9, where are you? And God is looking down upon all the men that he created who's given his, you talents. Some of you have five. Some of you have three. Some of you have one. He's giving you talents and he's saying, hey, where are you? Where are the men that my son died for? Where are you? While this stuff is going on in the culture, while this stuff is going on in the government, while sex trafficking has become a billion dollar industry. And who are all the people supplying that money? We are men. Where are you? Are you going to give the same lame excuse that Adam did? Uh, Lord, instead of manning up and saying, you know what, Lord, my bad. I was supposed to serve, protect, and defend. I got caught up in the lie. I messed up. Instead, he says in verse 12, the woman who thou gavest to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. See, Lord, I was just minding my own business. And the woman who you put here, she gave me the fruit. She said, baby, eat this. Okay. Come on now. He blames her. He cannot accept responsibility for his sin, so he has to blame somebody else. And we still do that today. It's somebody else's fault that I'm the way I am. It's somebody else's fault that I... Look, I grew up in Newark. My father was not around. My father, he loved womenizing, alcohol, and cigarettes. That's what he loved. He most certainly did not love the four of us, his children, or my mom. That's for sure. So, and, but yet, I'm the person that I am today. Actually, the neighborhood I grew up in, I should be dead or in jail right now. So I don't want to hear anybody's lame excuse that you're the way you are because the way you grew up with, crap, crap. You put God first in your life, God can do amazing things in your life. Here's the thing. 
We, oh, I don't have time to go to Mass. I don't have time to pray the rosary. I don't have time to live my faith. I don't have time for men's group. I don't have time for this. You, you do have the time. You make time for those things in your life that are important to you. The reason why you don't come to this group, why you don't go to Mass, why you're not praying every day, why you're not doing the rosary, why you're not going to adoration, is because it's not important to you. Stop lying to yourself. Please, wake up. The reason why you're not doing those things is not because you don't have time, because it's not important to you. That's not who we are, man. So what are some of the results of this fall? Well, first of all, since we're in Advent, right? Look what God does. I'm not going to go through this whole uh, exegesis on this on Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel it's called. What does the Lord say? He goes, okay, you use the uh, woman, Satan, as a vehicle to bring sin into the world. I'm going to use a woman as a vehicle to bring salvation into the world. And so he sets the whole thing up right in the beginning of Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity, or it means complete and perfect opposition, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. So he sets it up right here. And if I had time, I'd go through and explain that this woman is the Blessed Virgin Mary. And how can that be so right from the text? All right, so you have to figure that one out on your own. But what I want to get into now is to the results that we're still living with today. Number one, pornography. You know, there's no question or doubt in my mind that pornography is the most destructive element to authentic Catholic male spirituality. You know, the Lord Jesus addresses the seriousness of sin and lust in Matthew's gospel. He he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Every time you look at porn and every time you masturbate while you're looking at the porn, you are committing adultery. But you try to say to yourself, well, it doesn't meet the technical definition of adultery because I'm not cheating on my wife. Read the catechism of the church. That, look, look what the Lord says. That's adultery. Hello, this is God speaking. Then he goes on. If your right hand caused you to sin, Cut it off. If your eye caused you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. What do you do with your right hand? What do you do with your eyes? It is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. It is better for you to lose one of your members, cut out your, again, he says it twice, than your whole body go into hell. Then later on, he says the same thing again. Wait a minute. When a Jew wanted to say something that was of the highest importance, how many times did he say it? Obviously, this is important to the Lord, and it should be important to us. Now, why do we look at porn? Very simply this. Women are the most beautiful creatures that God has ever created. Okay? I, I've, been, I've had the, the, the great fortune of traveling all over the world, South Africa, Japan, Singapore, Malaysia, Australia. I've been over to a dozen countries. I've seen some beautiful stuff. Ain't nothing more beautiful than a woman. All right? I'd be the first one to admit it. Okay, I get it. God knew knew what he was doing. But that's not an excuse for us not to see women the way God sees them, to look at them through God's eyes. I'm going to finish this talk by showing you uh, a hands-on example of exactly what I'm talking about. It's going to be actually it's going to be quite fun. So I can't wait for that. So I'm going to be done pretty soon here. So let me connect the contraception and, and pornography thing for you. Now, I do what a lot of priests and deacons are afraid to do. I preach the truth of the Catholic faith, including contraception, abortion, all that stuff, okay? I'm not afraid to preach the truth in love. 
Ephesians 4.15. The truth, but in love. So after giving uh, a homily, and not focusing on what we can't do, you can't do this, but the beauty of who God created us to be and what we can do, and what God's love and covenant relationship frees us to do, who it frees us to be, the person that God created us to be. Why do I preach that way? Simply this. When I die and stand before God, he's going to say, I gave you some talents. What did you do with them? And I'm afraid I'm going to reach into my pocket and pull out one talent and try to give it to him. That scares me. So after preaching one Sunday, and it's interesting, out of all the places in the world I've preached in, the only place I've ever gotten a complaint is my own diocese. So I, I preached on the beauty of the church's teaching on human sexuality. And a guy comes to me afterward and goes, Dig, I want to talk to you. I said, okay, not here. Okay. So, so I took my vestments off. I go to the rector and we sit down. I said, what's going on? He said, I didn't like your homily. Okay. Which part? All of it. All right. What's the problem? Well, my wife doesn't want to have sex with me anymore. Ooh, that's not good. How long has this been going on? Oh, for about a month or so. Oh, okay. Are you guys contracepting? Deacon. Look, look, let me explain something to you, okay? This is the 21st century. All these people that you're preaching to out here, they're all contracepting, all right? No one follows that archaic 10th century teaching from the church. Look, dude, I asked you a yes or no question. He goes, of course we are. What does that have to do with anything? I said, I'll get back to that. Tell me what's going on here in your house. You said, wife doesn't have sex with me. What does that look like? He says, well, you know, like the last time I, you know, the kids were gone and we had a nice little dinner and we were by ourselves and a little after the dinner, I gave her the signals, you know, I said, I got you. And uh, I said, what happened? She said, well, I don't want to have sex with you right now. And I'm waiting for the rest of it. And he's not saying anything. I said, is that all she said? He said, yes. And you're mad. Yes. Let me see if I understand. Did your wife tell you, I don't love you anymore? No. Did your wife tell you, I don't want to ever have sex with you ever again? No. You said that she said, I don't want to have sex with you right now. Did you say, okay, baby, what about an hour from now? You even give her that much? No. Then why are you angry? Disappointed, I can see. Been there. <laughs> but why are you so angry? And he couldn't tell me. I said, I'll tell you exactly why you're angry. Because your wife is now your whore. Let me explain. And I went over this little piece of the Genesis thing. I said, here's the thing. See, love and life are two things that God never intended to be separated. Notice that in Genesis, we didn't go over Genesis 1, but in Genesis 1 and 2, right after God, after love creates us out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of love and then life. Love, life. Love, life. Are interwoven into the very fabric of our being and existence from God. Psalm 119 says it beautifully. Because of your love, O Lord, give me life, and I will do your will. See, what you've done by contracepting, you've forced a wedge, forced apart love and life. They're not supposed to be separated. And by doing that, you've created a void, a chasm, a gap, an emptiness. And the human heart longs for this to be reunited. But instead of trying to reunite it by following the teachings of the church, which help us to become perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect, it helps us to become whole and complete. What you've done, if you tried to fill this with what? What do we fill this with, guys? What do we fill this gap with? You know, come on now. Porn, alcohol, 
drugs, your job, all this stuff you're doing because you, you think you're so important to fill this emptiness, this void you feel. Let me tell you something. You think your job is so important, you got to make all this money. Let me tell you something. Try this. Die. Do you really think that the company you work for, the law firm or wherever you work, is going to say, oh, no, Jim is dead. What are we going to do? We're going to have to shut our doors. They'll mourn you for three days and hire somebody to take your place. But your kids, you don't get that time back. You'll never get it back again. And I'll tell you one thing that I learned. Your kids don't want your money. They want you. But you can't give yourself to them because of this. Filling this. And get, it's a bottomless pit. It keeps falling, falling, and you're never able to bring this back. You're never able to close. Anything you're doing right now, apart from the teachings of the church, is just falling through that hole, falling, and it never closes. And you never feel fulfilled. You never feel complete. Your relationship with God becomes stagnant. You're never able to have the marriage that you've always wanted. You're never able to have the job you always wanted. You're never able to have it because you're all, you're, that's what's happening. And you're stuck because you're a slave. So he looks at me. He looks at me. And he goes, well, what do you do? I said, my, me and my wife? I said, look, we use natural family planning. He said, what's that? So I had to explain what it was to him. So he goes, well, I don't understand. Say... It's during one of those times where your wife uh, is not into it. Say it's one of the non-fertile times, and your wife just doesn't want to have sex. What do you do? Also, that's happened to me. I've come back from trips. You know, I may, may have been gone 10 days, two weeks, like overseas or something. And I come back, I wanna, I'm ready to go. You know, and I'm, I'm packing my clothes. I put them in the, in the hamper in the bathroom, and I look in the garbage can. Damn! Oh, no, oh, man. Got to wait another week now. So... We go, so what do you do? I said, I have 3,000 books at home on theology and philosophy. The one closest to my bed is the Summa Theologica by St. Thomas Aquinas. And when my wife ain't into it, no problem. I take the Summa, I go into the, my office or the family room, I sit down and read St. Thomas Aquinas so that feeling goes away. Because reading Thomas Aquinas will kill any sexual desire you have in your body. Trust me, man, it works. But I told him I would rather do that going to turn my wife into a thing, into an object, into a, into a whatever. Why? Because every day of my life, I want to see my wife. I want to look at every woman and see what God sees. I want to look at her through God's eyes. That's why I will never contracept, ever. I said, you know what? Let me tell you, explain something to you. One day, some guy's going to want to take my daughter someplace. And I'm going to do everything that a good husband and father will do in that situation. I have my Glock out, shining it up when the guy comes to the door. Do a background check on him and his family, right? And I'm going to talk to my daughter. But look, what I say to her in those few minutes is going to go in one ear and out the other. Why? She's focused on that guy. What she's going to take out the door with her that night is the same thing she's going to take down the aisle with her one day. The same thing she may take it to the convent with her one day. She's going to have 16 or 17 years of watching how I treat my wife. So the greatest gift I can ever give to my children is to love my wife as Christ loved the church, to give my life and die for them every day of my life. Because if I want my daughter to marry the man of her dreams, I'd better show her what one looks like. So the guy starts crying at this point. And I said, look, bro, I'm not, I preach the way I do not to bring you down, but to raise you up. And so we started having a conversation after that. Beautiful. So one more thing I want to talk about is masturbation. Let's first of all talk about what it is. Catechism says that masturbation should be understood as deliberate stimulation of genital organs to derive sexual pleasure. Now, here's the thing. 
I'm, and this is unbelievable. I went to the Planned Parenthood teen website, teen website, and to menshealth.com to see what the culture says about masturbation. Here are some quotes. Many people do it, yet so many people worry about doing it. That's because there's a lot of myths out there about masturbation being dirty and dangerous and something to be embarrassed about. But the truth is, masturbation is safe and healthy, and it's here to stay. These are excuses that we make for why we have to do it. And here's another one. We are programmed to need orgasms. It's a fundamental aspect of men's health right up there with brushing your teeth. So my senior father, sorry, but I guess you guys won't be healthy. What, what is this? Crap! It relieves stress and keeps every part of your body in good shape. Oh, so don't work out, guys. Don't go to the gym. I got something else for you. Regularly flushing your system prevents you from getting prostate cancer. Oh, so now, look, it's a cure for cancer. Now, come on now. Sexual intercourse doesn't provide the same benefit. Sexual intercourse doesn't. So do that rather than the real thing? Are they nuts? Is that the crap they're trying to shove down our throats? Here's the reality. If the more you do that, your brain can learn to prefer sexual fantasy to real sexual intimacy with your spouse. In fact, your brain's arousal circuitry can become so dominated and wired for self-sex that physical intimacy with your spouse can become increasingly more difficult and eventually virtually impossible. That's this, the gap, huh? Think of, so that actually causes you to prefer fantasy over the real thing. That is insane. That's from, that's from Satan. But yet, but now look, do I have, I'm a man, okay? Do I, do I have a problem with porn? Nope. You know why? Because I fight. I travel 150,000 miles a year. When I set my computer up, I got a desktop crucifix. I got Sacred Heart of Jesus, Macular Heart of Mary, Divine Mercy, pictures of my family around the computer. Before I turn that thing on, Our Father, Three Hail Marys, Glory Be to the Father. Then I turn the computer on because I prepare myself spiritually to fight. Then if I do get tempted to watch something, I watch EWTN. <laughs> I don't watch myself. Because I, I have five television series in EWTN. So I don't watch myself, but I, I watch, or I go to savior.org, 24-hour Eucharistic adoration online. So I watch Jesus. Now, and you also got to know your temptation points. When am I most tempted? When my wife's on her period or really late at night. So what do I do? I got the Summa Theologica for the period, and I've got, and I've had to learn now to go to bed earlier. So I cut myself off working to a certain time, then that's it. Then I start then I'm off the computer. I'll go watch a movie with my wife or something, but I won't get on the computer anymore. You got to understand that. Fight, right? And what's the other one? The weapon? Same thing Padre Pio said, the rosary. Let me explain something to you, men of God. Padre Pio called this his weapon, and he's exactly right. If you start praying this thing, the devil will run from you. He will run from you because he cannot stand the names of Jesus and Mary which we say over and over again when we reflect on the mysteries of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through the heart of the Blessed Virgin Mary. He will run from you. But why don't you pray? Because it's boring. It's just the same prayers over and over and over again. Again, another lame excuse for why you can't do it because it's not important to you. you know the difference between me and you? Seriously, nothing. There's no difference between me and you. I choose to fight. I choose to fight, and I choose to win. Mary was the first monstrance. She was the first vessel 
that held in the tabernacle of her womb the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. She was the ark of the new covenant. Because think about it, when you look at how they built the ark, you look at how all, everything that went into it, it was perfect. They had the best carpenters, the best masons, the best artists, very specific that had to be absolutely perfect. And in fact, not even anybody could touch it. Who the person who could touch the, the ark? Remember who? The Levites. But when the ark was falling and then one dude said, the ark is falling, I will help. And he jumped up there, what happened to him? Boop. Dead. Because you don't get to touch the ark. But what was inside the ark? The Ten Commandments? Aaron's staff. Aaron's staff and the manna from heaven. So look at what's inside the ark of the new covenant. Isn't the Ten Commandments the word of God, Amen. Didn't John, in chapter 1, the prologue of his gospel, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And didn't Jesus synthesize the Ten Commandments? Love God, 1 through 3. Love your neighbor as yourself, 4 through 10. Didn't Jesus said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Your fathers ate the bread in the desert. They died. He who is this bread lives forever. And the staff of Aaron, what does staff represent? He's the, he's the, and he's an authority, and he's a shepherd. Didn't Jesus say, I am the good shepherd? When Mary went to see her kinswoman Elizabeth, that was the first Eucharistic procession. When she got to the house of Elizabeth, and upon the greeting reached her ears, what does Elizabeth tell us that John the Baptist did in her womb? Leapt. The, the word is skirtau in Greek, or dalag in Hebrew, which they use in the Old Testament for a mountain goat jumping off a mountain. John the Baptist went nuts. Busting up Elizabeth. Why? The monstrous walked in. He began to adore. He was the first adorer of the Eucharist, of the presence of God in the tabernacle. The home of Mary and Joseph was the first adoration chapel. Imagine what this world would be like if every man looked at a woman and saw the monstrous. You know what that does? closes that gap. The sacraments and teachings of the church closes that gap. Makes us whole again. Makes us complete again. Makes us willing to fight again. Because this is me because I refuse. I refuse to be a slave anymore. So to conclude, the Eucharist is the true model of holiness. Why? You look at Jesus on the cross. That's what it means to be a real man. You want to see what a real man looks like? Take a look at Jesus Christ crucified. Being a real man means embracing the cross we've been given because it's in the cross that we discover why we exist at all. Thanks for tuning in to this week's One Body Stewarding God's Creation show. If you can help keep this show on the air, please go to dvmercy.com and click on donate. Your donation will be greatly appreciated. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 101.7 KJDM Lindsburg Salina, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, and 88.1 KVDM Hayes. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts.